0: Well, good morning again. Uh, It's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. We're now in the third week of Advent, if you can believe it. This season of waiting, this season of longing for God to come and fulfill His promises and bring all that we are longing for to fruition. In the first week, we heard from Isaiah 2, which was our call to worship this morning, about the latter days when the mountain of the house of the Lord will be lifted up and the nations will flow to Him. And as a result, the warring and the pride of the nations will come to an end and will turn into humility and peace. Last week, we heard from Isaiah 9 and the promise that in those latter days, the deep darkness of God's judgment will give way to light and the oppression of his people will come to an end. And all of that will happen because this little child who will sit on the throne of his father, David, he will be king and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom of peace, there will be no end. Well, this week we now turn to Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to hear more about this king who will come to rule his people and bring a kingdom of peace that will have no end. But before we hear God's word, would you pray with me and ask for his help? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, and the joy and hope that are found in him alone. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place. Shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. As we work through this text this morning, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see what is in the background of what Isaiah tells us, and we're going to see what he has to say about the relationship between salvation and judgment. And then we're going to see the promised Davidic king and learn more about what he will be like. And then finally, we're going to see more about his promised kingdom. That he will bring with him. The first thing that we see in this chapter actually draws us back on earlier chapters and what Isaiah has said about judgment and salvation. Listen to what verse 1 says There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The first question that you ought to be asking yourself is why is Jesse a stump? Remember, Jesse is the name of King David's father. The prophets would often speak of Israel by naming them by their forefathers, by Isaac or Jacob. So this is a picture of Israel, or at the very least of the kingship of Israel. So why is Israel a stump instead of a large, healthy tree? The answer is because God has chopped them down. Most immediately at the end of chapter 10, Isaiah tells us about the worldly powers that are high and lofty, but they will be hewn down by God, like a forest full of trees that is leveled into a field of stumps. But God doesn't just do this to the nations of the world around Israel. In chapter 6, He t- tells Isaiah that He is going to do this to Israel as well, to His own people. Isaiah 6 tells of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. And right after this famous, famous vision of the Lord in the temple, the Lord tells him that he is going to prophesy judgment to Israel. Isaiah hears this and he asks God, How long, O Lord? And the Lord said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy steed is its stump. Like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. So again, the picture that we have of Israel is that it was once a large tree, that God himself had grown. He nurtured it. He cultivated it. He cared for it all those years of its growth. But because of Israel's sin and rejection of God, he comes in judgment to chop it down. And after it's chopped down, Isaiah says that it will be burned with fire. So Israel is left as a charred, chopped down stump. And Isaiah 11 says, from that stump, there will come forth a shoot. This is a sapling. This is a small tree, a sprout that emerges from this charred stump. And it will bear fruit, which means that it will grow into a mature and large tree again. And it won't be a rotten tree, it will be a tree that produces fruit. Fruit in Scripture is always a picture of visible results, good works, righteousness, healthy offspring. The picture that we should see is life growing out of death. This shoe is the Messiah, the little child king that we talked about last week, Jesus Christ, the holy seed that comes forth from Israel. And this is a picture of His amazing salvation that comes on the heels of judgment. Think about what Isaiah is saying in this text. This is God promising that he will finally come through on all his covenant promises. That he is bringing to fulfillment all that he has promised his people. He promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that an offspring would sit on his throne and establish a kingdom that would last forever. He promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that his family would ultimately be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In Exodus 29, he promised Israel that he himself would dwell among them and be their God. This little child, this shoot from the stump, is the fulfillment of all of those promises. God is faithful to his covenant. He is true to his word. He is finally working his promised salvation. But how is he doing it? He's doing it by tearing His people down and sending the fires of judgment upon her. He's bringing salvation through pain and suffering. And the truth is, this isn't just how God worked that one time, or how He used to work maybe in the Old Testament. God promises that He still works in this way. Blessing comes through suffering. Romans 5.3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. What a statement. Why? Why is it that Christians would do something so crazy as rejoicing in suffering? Well, Paul tells us why. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James 1 says the same thing. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1 says the same thing. Peter's talking about the inheritance that we have that is kept in heaven for us. And in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We tend to think that times of suffering and difficulty are an interruption in the Christian life. God, why are you doing this? I was doing so well. I was growing. I was maturing. Good things were happening. And now I'm sidelined with all these troubles. And God, without fail in the scriptures, tells you that when you suffer, As a Christian, that is when you are growing and maturing. That is when God is most producing character and hope and even joy in you. Peter uses the same language that Isaiah used. God sends a fire upon you. But it's so important that we see what that fire is. The fire is not meant to destroy you. The fire is meant to purify you. It burns away the dross in your life and leaves the pure gold of your Christian character and trust in God. God is working salvation through your suffering. Is this how you think about hard things when they come your way? Losing a family member or a close friend. A particular challenge in the life of your son or daughter being sinned against by someone you love, receiving another piece of bad news from the doctor. Do these feel like interruptions in the life that you're wanting to live? Or do you rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and character and hope? Don't hear me say that these things are good in and of themselves. They are suffering. They are pain. They are evils that are only here because of the sin that has entered the world. And they will go away when Christ returns in glory. But right now, in the hands of your loving and compassionate Father, they are tools for your growth and for your joy. Salvation comes through judgment. Blessing comes through suffering. That's verse 1. That's what's in the background of this promise. And it's the way that Isaiah has spoken again and again to Israel. God is coming through on His promises. He is bringing His covenant story with Israel to fulfillment. And he's doing so when it seems the least likely that he's doing it. The king from David's line, the offspring of Abraham, who will bring blessing to the world, he is coming. In verses 2 through 5, we're told a lot about this king. Last week, we were told his names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This week, we're going to see a bit more what he is like. Isaiah tells us about his endowment in verse 2, his character at the beginning of verse 3, and then the rest of verses 3 to 5, he talks about his rule. First, in verse 2, he tells us about his endowment or his gifting that he has as king. Read verse 2 with me. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord comes to people for gifting, usually for a particular task that they are meant to do. So in Exodus 31, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Belzalel to give him the ability to make the artistic designs of the tabernacle. In Judges 14, the Spirit rushes upon Samson to give him supernatural strength. In 1 Samuel 10, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul so that he could prophesy. And the implication of all of these is that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone while the task is before them and then leaves. He comes and then he goes. Only of David do we hear that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. But even David had nothing like what we see Jesus have here. Here, the Spirit of the Lord doesn't just rush, he rests upon Jesus. He doesn't come and go, he stays with him. And he gives Jesus a threefold blessing he gives him wisdom and understanding, these are blessings for leadership, counsel and might. Remember, might last week when we talked about the mighty God. Might is a picture of a strong warrior. It's being strong in battle. These two blessings are blessings for war. Jesus doesn't just have brute strength for war, but he has counsel to make good and wise decisions in battle. And then he is given the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are gifts for holiness, for character. These are the hallmarks, these two things, of right living in the Proverbs. These are dependence upon the Lord. This is the amazing gifting of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And this is part of the mind-bending truth of the incarnation that we can't quite wrap our heads around. As we saw last week, Jesus is the mighty God. He is Yahweh, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But as a human, he's also dependent upon the gifting and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Especially in the Gospel of Luke, we see again and again that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, both for his life and for his work. This happens from the very beginning at his miraculous conception, but then it happens again and again in his life and his ministry. Jesus is full of the gifting and empowering. Of the Holy Spirit. Up until this point in Isaiah, this is pretty normal for what we've heard about this coming king. We've heard a lot about what he will do and what he will accomplish. But in the first line of verse 3, we actually get a picture of the heart of Jesus, his personal character, what he delights in. Verse 3 says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is often pretty misunderstood. Sometimes people talk about it like we are actually supposed to be scared of God, like it is meant to temper our affection for Him or our love for Him. Sometimes people might downplay it as some kind of stoic reverence. But in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is actually a picture of the kind of love that we are to have for God. A love that isn't mushy and frothy feelings, but a love that is in awe. A love that is obedient. A love that is enamored with who God is and what He has done. It is a love that is so intense that we tremble. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, summarizes it like this. He says, it's not because we are afraid of Him, but because we delight in Him, that we fear before Him. The more we fear the Lord, the more we love Him. Until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love Him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. And what we learn in Isaiah 11 is that Jesus delights in that kind of fear. Loving God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength isn't a burden for him or an annoying task. It's a delight. This is a picture of his heart. This is not just someone who does the right thing. This is someone who loves the right thing. This is the character of our king. He delights in the fear of the Lord. The rest of verse 3 and on through verse 5 tell us not about His gifting or His character, but about His rule. Listen to how He uses the gifts of the Spirit in the way that He rules His people. He shall not judge by what His eyes see, or decide disputes by what His ears hear. But with righteousness He shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The Spirit has not given Jesus wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord for no purpose. No one looks at Jesus and says, "Man, wasted potential. He was so gifted, but he never really used it." Jesus perfectly uses Every gift that is given to him. The end of verse 3 tells us that for Jesus, there is no gap between appearance and reality. No one fools him. Hypocrisy is for other people. It is certainly not for Jesus, who sees the hearts and minds of everyone with absolute clarity. Verse 4 tells us that he treats everyone in perfect conjunction with reality. With Jesus, we don't have to choose between an authoritarian who will be hard on the wicked or a softy who will have compassion on the weak. Jesus works both justice and compassion perfectly for all people without fail. And then look at verse 5. Jesus doesn't walk around with bravado and ego like many leaders. His clothing is a true king's clothing. He is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. And at this point, we need to just stop and rejoice. How many conversations have you had or overheard in your lifetime about what we should prioritize in a good leader? What's more important? His understanding of war and national defense and foreign relations or his ability to govern and lead his people well, maybe with wise legal or economic decisions? Should we put someone in office who is super gifted and skilled and knowledgeable but has questionable character? Or someone who is obviously a person of character but lacks some of the skills needed to do the job? Should we overlook some of that person's personal failures because of the results they produce? Or should we give someone a pass on a poor job because of how great of an example they are? Brothers and sisters, when Jesus returns, you will never have another conversation like that again. This man is endowed with everything he needs to rule and reign his people, not by mustering his own strength or by using his own impressive education, but by the spirit of the living God. He's not highly skilled, but lacking in character. He delights in the fear of the Lord. And no one will say, I had really high hopes for him, but he just never amounted to what I thought he could be. Like the Queen of Sheba, we will all marvel at the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of Jesus as he rules his people. King Jesus will never disappoint or fail you. He is the perfect king that we are all waiting and longing for. But there's something else about his rule that we haven't talked about yet. It's a great thing to have a good king. A great ruler and leader is a blessing on his people. But usually, a great leader has limits. He can only do so much. Think about Nick Saban for a minute, the Alabama football coach. It's amazing what he does with those players year after year. He just got another Heisman winner last night. He directs them and teaches them, and they buy into what he's doing, and the results are amazing and frustrating if you're not an Alabama fan. But does anyone think that Nick Saban could do that with a bunch of one-star recruits? If he got hired away by San Jose State University and no one was allowed to follow him in the transfer portal, does anyone think that he would have the results that he's had at Alabama? No way. We all realize that he's doing amazing things, but that he needs amazing raw talent to do it. He can't make players who are slow and small and unskilled into superstars. And into an incredible team. Friends, Jesus does not have those restrictions. And we are all very thankful for that. Jesus walks into a world marred with people who are sinful. He walks into a world filled with people who are themselves filled up with pride, bent on selfishness and taking whatever they want from others. And he turns us into the paradise that we read about in verses six through nine. Look at these with me. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lay down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There are various interpretations of the verses that we just read. Some people say that this points to the transformation of the created order. Meat eaters, like wolves, leopards, and lions, will no longer eat meat. That's why they're laying down with what they normally eat. God can do anything He wants, and there are reasons why people have that interpretation. But I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying here. It's not uncommon for Scripture to talk about evil nations as predators and the nations that they destroy as their prey. What Isaiah is prophesying here is the same thing that he has said to us for the last two weeks in chapter 2 and chapter 9. The rule of Jesus as king is going to end the strife and the conflict and the fighting and the war that is so a part of the world we live in. He is the prince of peace who will bring about perfect peace. And as you imagine that world, be sure you realize that he's talking about more than just armed warfare. Jesus will end all conflict. You won't turn on the TV and see one group of people slandering another group. You won't get a text from a coworker finding out that someone else took credit for your work. Your child won't come in the door crying because her friends called her names. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. As chapter 9 said last week, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the question that you ought to be asking is how is he going to do that? This world is an absolute mess right now. How is he going to turn it into a dominion of peace and joy? And you might be thinking, maybe he's going to do it like Nick Saban. He's going to recruit the best and the most talented and populate the world with them. Maybe he'll call out all the sinners like you and like me, and only leave the elites, the really good people. We understand that he's a good king, but even a good king needs good subjects for things to work out. Look at how Jesus accomplishes this. He doesn't create a utopia by good recruiting or empowering the elites. He does it by changing hearts. The end of verse 9 gives us the reason why everything that came before it is happening. He says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord is not just intellectual information. It's relational knowledge. And Isaiah says that this utopia that he is talking about, this kingdom of peace, comes because that kind of knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea which means everywhere. Everywhere on earth will be that kind of knowledge of the Lord. This is a common promise in the prophets. When the Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. He won't just make life better. He will bring life to dead hearts. Here's how Ezekiel says it in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean rests and remains on King Jesus. But he's not the kind of king who hoards his gifts. How does he bring about the kingdom of peace where idols are toppled over and his people follow him in holiness and righteousness? He pours his own Holy Spirit out upon us. The very Spirit that empowers him now empowers us. And just as it was said of him, it will be said of you. His delight, her delight, is in the fear of the Lord. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. If you are a Christian, that is not just a future. That is your future. It's true that in the here and now, maturity and growth and progress happen through suffering and pain. Jesus said to his disciples before he left, In this world, you will have trouble." but that is not how it will always be. There will be a day when the peace of Christ will rule. There will be a day where sin and death and pain will be no more. There will be a day when our transformed hearts won't be a mixture of faithfulness and sinfulness, but a pure delight in God. That day is coming because Jesus is coming. Put your trust and your hope and your joy in Him. He is your King. you all pray with me? Father, we hear these words and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly to work in us all that you promise that you will and are. Come quickly to bring this kingdom of peace and end pain and death and sorrow and sin. But as we wait, we pray that you would continue to shape us and mold us into your image. Make us those who delight in you and make us those who point others to you as the only true hope and the only true fulfillment of all our longings. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.